Hello and welcome to Anjali Vision, a monthly podcast hosted by me, Anjali Misra, a Chicago-based freelance writer and community organizer and general pop culture trivia savant. Each episode, I offer my best analysis of current shows across multiple platforms and genres and interview guests about their favorite TV show or current obsession. Come for the intersectional feminist critiques of popular media, stay for the deep conversations with folks from a variety of backgrounds about what they love or hate to watch. Welcome to episode 10 of Unjuly Vision. For this January 2024 episode, I'm actually doing something a little different. I'll still share shows I'm currently watching, shows I'm looking forward to in 2024, but in addition, going way back to 2017 to another life, a past life when I was a radio journalist. I'm going to be sharing a clip of an interview I did with the comedian and writer Hari Kondabolu because it is relevant to the current moment we find ourselves in. And I just thought it was important to revisit my conversation with Hari because, as you'll hear in my interview with him, a lot of his work around punching up in his comedy and writing a lot of really, I think, astute political comedy remains evergreen. I'll get into a little bit more of that later. But as always, I want to ground listeners in the episode, in the current moment, just as in recent episodes, it still feels very hard to recommend silly TV shows in the face of just like truly horrific ongoing violence in Palestine, Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, the Congo. And so I have personally been looking for things to ground me. And I found this quote from the writer Fariha Roshin that I think speaks uh, to where certainly I am, but where a lot of us find ourselves in our thinking, in our feelings, especially like living in the heart of empire. No one is pure in a colonized world. We all live by our contradictions. Working at Amazon and being disgusted by Amazon, being an artist and hating the art system, teaching at a university and wanting to tear it all down, studying freedom in college while you go deeper in debt, struggling to pay rent but displacing someone else, a Ford fellow who protests the Ford Foundation, oppressed but also contributing to other people's oppression. This is the entangled dystopia of our present. We can see contradictions as impediments and be consumed by frustration, ambivalence, and despair, or we can acknowledge and heighten them. Quiet forms of subversion, deep conversations, mobilizations, large and small, each act we take further undermines the principles that sustain this system. Uh, And so again, I think that really points to what a lot of us are, are sitting with. Like, it's such a privilege to be able to escape into a piece of entertainment um, and to, quote-unquote, unplug from everything that's happening in the world. And so, you know, if you're like me, you have to sit with that contradiction. While, you know, I'm personally organizing out in the real world, I'm also looking to storytelling and art for making sense and finding direction amidst chaos. And so I've also been thinking a lot about the legacy 
the entertainment industry and Hollywood have in contributing to both negative depictions of oppressed people as well as folks who have used their entertainment platforms to amplify calls for justice. I'm thinking particularly of shows like 24 and Homeland had millions of viewers and really shaped a lot of people's views on Muslim and Arab-coded people. I'm also thinking about the popularity and celebration of shows like Rami and Mo, for example. And so I think we can and should be watching and uplifting stories made by and about persecuted people themselves. And in my next episode, just as a preview, I'm going to be diving a little bit more deeply and speaking with creators around representations of Arab Americans in U.S. TV media. But beyond what I've already shared, I just also want to encourage folks to read up on the historically biased and harmful representations, particularly of Arabs and Muslims in Western media. It's something I studied in school, and so I can recommend works from authors like Evelyn Al-Sultani, Jasbir Puar, of course, Edward Said and his work around the whole like thinking of Orientalism. You can also watch shows made by folks who signed the Artists for Ceasefire letter and who continue to speak up and speak out. I'm thinking of like folks like Melissa Barrera, who was on that celebrated show Vida, Pedro Pascal, who was on The Last of Us, America Ferreira, who was on Ugly Betty, Little Things, Small Acts of Subversion, definitely have an impact. But also find your political home. Get involved in local organizing in your area. That's my soapbox for the day. So on to just some reviews of stuff I've been watching recently. Again, in between being out in the world. People actually have been asking me how I watch so much TV. It's no secret. I'm doing other stuff while I'm watching. Here's what I've been watching while I'm doing other stuff. The Curse on Showtime. As of recording of this episode, I think there are two episodes left. It's like a 10-episode, one-hour show. I only know of one season. I don't know if it's been renewed for a second season or not. But quick synopsis, the series explores how an alleged curse disturbs the relationship of a newly married couple as they try to conceive a child while co-starring on their problematic new HGTV show Flip Lanthropy. If you haven't heard of it, it stars Emma Stone, Nathan Fielder, Benny Softie, Barkhad Abdi, who really got his start in that film Captain Phillips, and I think he's a great Somali-American actor. This show is definitely not for people who deplore awkwardness. The whole show is predicated on Nathan Fielder's signature awkwardness, and also to a certain extent, Benny Softie, who's just like a weird dude. And... <laughs> Um, Emma Stone is, yeah, super talented. I uh, have never been like a massive fan of hers. Like I could take her or leave her, but The Curse, entertaining. Again, not for the faint of heart if you cannot stand awkwardness. I've also been watching Fargo, which is an FX series on Hulu. Again, a 10 episode, one hour series. It's the fifth season. This is an anthology show. So every season is like a different setting, different cast. 
And yeah, this season stars Juno Temple, who a lot of folks know from Ted Lasso, Jennifer Jason Lee, Joe Keery, who folks know from Stranger Things, Lamorne Morris, who you might recognize from New Girl, Richa Morjani, who plays the cousin character on Never Have I Ever, Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall, definitely a fan of Dave Foley, and then John Hamm. So yeah, this season focuses on a character named Dot, who's a seemingly typical Midwestern housewife living in Minnesota, whose mysterious past comes back to haunt her after she lands in hot water with the authorities. There are a few things I'm really liking about this season. One of the things is this exploration of this seedy American concept of constitutional sheriffs that I didn't know about, that I learned about from this season of Fargo. Look it up. It's crazy. Just a lot of extrajudicial, paramilitary, extreme, right-wing taking of the law into one's own hands and abusing one's power in the name of Christian fundamentalism? Yeah, it is as wild as it sounds. John Hamm plays the constitutional sheriff of this podunk town in, I believe, North Dakota. It's wild, y'all. The things you learn about America from TV. Ooh-wee. Oh, another thing I really like about the show is just, they, they've done this in previous seasons, is the incorporation of American urban legend and myth and folklore and to a certain extent magic. That has been fascinating. You're not quite sure in some cases if a character, you don't find out later whether or not what you've just seen is something that they hallucinated or imagined or if they're experiencing some like supernatural thing. Um, and I like the way that the show bends that bends these genres and folds them together. I won't say too much. I really recommend this season of Fargo. Another FX on Hulu show that I want to recommend was Murder at the End of the World, a miniseries with seven hour-long episodes starring Emma Corrin, Britt Marling, Harris Dickinson, Alice Braga, Joan Chen, Jermaine Fowler, Clive Owen. Brief synopsis, the series follows Darby Hart, an amateur detective who is invited, along with eight other guests by a reclusive billionaire, to participate in a retreat at an isolated Arctic compound in Iceland. When one of the other guests is found dead, Darby must use all of her skills to prove it was murder against a tide of competing interests and before the killer takes another life. So definitely fast-paced, hard-boiled, thriller, murder mystery. The storyline oscillates between the present, where all of these guests are at this uh, Icelandic compound, and then back to Darby's days as a, an amateur detective with her partner really well-told story. One of the things I found particularly unique and interesting was the exploration of 
amidst this sort of what felt like this hard-boiled like murder mystery explorations into broader existential questions around artificial intelligence and gentrification, climate crisis. I think that the show took what could have been a potentially cheesy concept of what if the world's greatest minds who had the potential to change the world all got together for dinner one night, what would happen? That premise to me feels very flimsy and cheesy. But what this show did is totally was self-reflective in that at the end of the day, when it comes to if you have to survive against the odds of a murderer amongst you, your animal instincts are going to kick in. It's not going to matter that you are a billionaire or that you invented a smart city or that you had the shiniest robot at the science fair. There's a lot going on on the show, and I think a lot of credit should go to the co-producers, writers, Britt Barling, who obviously stars in the show, but then Sal Butt-Munglidge, he and Britt Marling have collaborated on popular shows in the past, like The OA on Netflix, um, and then also some films that they've worked on together. It's really good writing, really great performances, very much like a binge watch. Every episode ends on a cliffhanger, so you want to keep watching to figure out what's going to happen next. Okay, and just a couple more recommendations here. I actually really liked Fellow Travelers, despite it got mixed reviews. This is another mini-series based off of a novel. This series was one-hour-long episodes, eight of them, starring Matt Bomer, Jonathan Bailey, Jelani Aladdin, and Allison Williams. Brief synopsis, after a chance encounter in Washington, D.C. in the 1950s, Hawkins Fuller, played by Matt Bomer, and Timothy Laughlin, played by Jonathan Bailey, start a volatile romance that spans the Vietnam War protests of the 1960s, the drug-fueled disco hedonism of the 70s, and the AIDS crisis of the 1980s while facing obstacles in the world and in themselves. So like I said, the show got mixed reviews because of its clunky storytelling. I think it's always ambitious, particularly when shows, miniseries, are adapting from source material or like a novel that spans multiple decades. There's a lot that could go wrong in terms of anything from aging the characters over that many years to just pacing and i think unfortunately fellow travelers it did fall prey to this conundrum <laughs> this issue of figuring out how to tell these very nuanced stories full of emotion and character development over something like 40 years and so there were some episodes where an entire decade was glossed over in five minutes and then the first three to four episodes take place exclusively in, like, the 1950s McCarthy-era, like, Red Scare timeline. But despite mixed reviews, overall, I really enjoyed it because Matt Bomer and Jonathan Bailey have great on-screen chemistry. Um, they're both independent, you know, on their, I think, exceptional actors. And... 
Again, the source material that they were working from was very strong, despite its execution. Another instance of learning about just like parts of American history that, again, if you just read a book, you would find out that these things happened, but it's not something that you grow up learning about in school in America. Just the ways that queerness and homosexuality was just so horrifically weaponized during the McCarthy era, more than you'd imagine. But then I also think that for viewers who are not as familiar with the history of LGBTQ organizing, particularly in the U.S., I thought this show did a relatively good job of sharing vignettes and sort of individual stories of the ways that the queer community really had to come together during the AIDS crisis and even before the AIDS crisis to rally against discrimination and harm and state-sanctioned violence. And you can see now the ways that the legacy of the, that early organizing has shaped like contemporary issues. I don't think Fellow Travelers is like the best representation of that. I think there are shows that do a much better job, such as Pose, for example, um, just to name one of many great queer-led shows. I would say give it a watch. Okay, and the last show I'm going to recommend this episode is called Run the Burbs. I just found out about it because it only recently became available on Hulu. It's a Canadian CBC series that has actually already run two seasons. I think the third season is now airing in Canada, but you can watch it on Hulu here in the States. There are 13 30-minute episodes available per season for the first two seasons, and it stars Andrew Fung, who is celebrated and won a bunch of awards from when he was in a supporting role on Kim's Convenience, which you can watch on Netflix. And then the other performers are Rocky Morzaria, Zariah Wong, Roman Pacino, and Ali Hassan, who folks will know as the curmudgeonly uncle from a show I've talked about on the podcast before, the show Sort Of, one of my, like, I would say, like, top five series of all time. It's just such a sweet little family sitcom. Again, friends and enemies will remember that I do not like sitcoms very much. I get tired of them very fast, with the exception of a handful of shows. So yeah, Run the Burbs is definitely an exception to my anti-sitcom rule. It's about a Vietnamese, Indian, Canadian family. So dad is Vietnamese, mom is Indian, and they're two kids living in the suburbs of Ontario. Again, just like really charming, really sweet. I love to see a multiracial family sitcom that isn't like your formulaic monoracial <laughs> storytelling. Yeah. Also relatable as a kid who grew up in the suburbs in an Indian family. There's a lot to laugh at as feeling very familiar. And yeah, I just think it's super funny. It's well written. All of the comedic actors on the show are great. So I'm going to keep watching. And yeah, I would say check it out. Run the Burbs on Hulu. Okay, so now shifting a little bit. What am I looking forward to in 2024? 
there is a lot of really great TV coming up. Partially because some stuff that was supposed to air in 2023 got delayed because of the writer's strike. So now it's just, it's all coming out in 2024. Lots of good shows to look forward to. Let's try to move pretty quickly. Coming out in January, the fourth season of True Detective. I'm actually doing a rewatch of the first season because it's like one of my favorite pieces of television of all time. I don't even put it on a list because I feel like it is just on its own as being such exceptional television. Love, loved the first season of True Detective. Some people might know that the second season is famous for being terrible. I agree. Third season with Mahershala Ali, definitely a comeback. So good. Mahershala Ali turns everything he touches into gold. I've said it before. I'll say it again. And so with this fourth season starring Jodie Foster, I'm very excited. Again, for anyone not familiar with the True Detective franchise, it's an anthology series. So every season focuses on a new pair of detectives, partner detectives, investigating a crime, or more often than not, a homicide, a kidnapping. And then throughout the season, broader conspiracies unfold, and you get to know the personal lives of these detectives who are themselves very complicated people. It takes place in like a different city in the U.S. each season. Yeah, always like really strong casts in each season. First season was like Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson as the detectives. Second season was Colin Farrell and someone else. Again, I tried to block out. Oh, it was Rachel McAdams. So I try to not think about the second season. So I probably have the plot wrong. Third season was Mahershala Ali and Stephen Dorff. I just remembered. Wow. So yeah, very excited for this upcoming fourth season. Another show in 2024 that I'm super pumped about is The Brother's Son, starring Michelle Yeoh. Queen mother, Michelle Yeoh, can do no wrong, is a legend, an icon, the moment. Love, love her so much. <laughs> really excited to see her uh, on another series, another TV show. This is a Netflix show about like a young Taiwanese-American man who gets caught up in organized crime in Taipei. And then he comes back to the U.S. to seek the help and support of his family. And Michelle Yeoh is the mother character who I think is supposed to be like very formidable. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to the live action adaptation series of Avatar The Last Airbender. We don't talk about the failed M. Night Shyamalan film. Adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender. Hopefully, this will be a reclamation of the story, this upcoming series. I believe also on Netflix. Looks very promising. Early reviews say it's supposed to be really good. What else are we looking forward to in 2024? Oh, the updated serialized version of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Maya Erskine and Donald Glover. Looks like a really exciting retelling of the story. Mr. and Mrs. Smith has been like redone a bunch of times in film, but this will be the first time we can watch the series. So that's exciting. New season of Abbott Elementary. Who can complain? 
Nobody. Very excited about that. A couple of new shows that I don't know a ton about other than the headlines that uh, early reviews have said they're supposed to be really promising. Palm Royale going to be airing on Amazon Prime, starring Kristen Wiig. She plays a woman trying to infiltrate herself into high society in Palm Springs. And if any previous work of Kristen Wiig is an indicator, this is going to be super funny, irreverent. I'm really looking forward to it. And then two more upcoming series I'm excited about. Expats, which I believe will be airing on Amazon Prime in January. It's starring Soraya Blue, Nicole Kidman, Ji Young Yu. Created by Lulu Wang, who we know and love as the creator of Aquafina movie, The Farewell. Love that movie. Excited about expats. It's going to be about a look at the personal and professional lives of a tight-knit group of expatriates living in Hong Kong. And then lastly, I'm excited about this upcoming, I think it's an Apple TV series coming out in February called Constellation. It stars Numi Rapace, who is my preferred Lizbeth Salander. I'm not going to lie. I like her over Rooney Mara in the Swedish film series based off of the Girl with a Dragon Tattoo book series. <laughs> yeah, I love Numi Rapace. She was also like in the Ridley Scott Alien films or one of them. Two of them? Who knows? Love her. Excited to see her in a TV show. The show, again, show is called Constellation, and it is about an astronaut named Joe who returns to Earth after a disaster in space and discovers that there are missing pieces in her life. So she sets out to expose the truth about the hidden secrets of space travel and to recover what she has lost. But yeah, I'm a sucker for sci-fi, and I'm really looking forward to Constellation. So those are my excitements for 2024. All right. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm featuring an interview I did back in 2017 when I was a live anchor, a radio journalist for WORT 89.9 FM Community Radio in Madison, Wisconsin. And ahead of his live performances that month of April 2017, I interviewed Hari Kondabolu about his comedy career. And yeah, we had a great conversation about what it was like to be a like race-conscious comedian post-Trump election, as well as a whole host of topics like ethnic studies, and political activism. <laughs> Hari's a great guy. I've actually had the opportunity to interview him a couple times and meet him a couple times over the years. And so, uh, again, I thought that um, revisiting this conversation, however many years down the line, would be relevant, important, also just entertaining. Uh, you can hear me as a uh, bright 28-year-old very nervously hosting a live public radio interview show 
Oh, and speaking of public radio, I am obligated to state that the following clip originally aired on WORT 89.9 FM and it streamed at http colon slash slash www.wortfm.org. Check them out. Have a lot of love for public radio, community radio, particularly WORT, where I got my start. Lots of love to you all. Thank you for letting me share this clip. But without further ado, here is a little excerpt of my 2017 interview with writer and comedian Hari Kondabolu about comedy writing, American politics, and the zeitgeist. I mean, I feel like my writing is sadly evergreen. Like racism has always been around, sexism, homophobia, like these things, unfortunately, are timeless right? What Trump provides me with is a news peg, right? Gives me, he says something, says something about the Muslims, I can talk about Islamophobia. I plan to talk about Islamophobia anyway. And what he does is he makes it current. He makes it present. I can say what the president said. We're ta- we can talk about sexism. The president, when he was running on a bus, said this, which is weird that I can't quote what he said, on public radio because he's the president and it's, it would be a presidential quote. Hmm. Uh, but, but I can't because it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, feel free, feel free to laugh at any point. You don't need to feel pressured to ask the next question. If you feel like laughing or emoting in any way, I know it's, it's confusing for the public radio audience that isn't <laughs> used to emoting out loud yeah feel free okay you know i appreciate that uh that (laughs) invitation yeah only because trying to remain as professional as possible i'm gonna have to break it down a little bit for sure laughing isn't unprofessional it's human like i think you know i think people that's it's always funny with comedy or laughter i think people find it at times to be a base emotion like drama and that kind of intense seriousness is seen as a, somehow a, a higher thing, even though comedy is, is the defense mechanism. It's an incredible thing that we do to survive. To me, laughter is, is the most beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's a, something that connects all humans. Oh, that's so well said, for sure. I agree, and that kind of brings me to my next question a little bit. You have a background in political activism and a, an education and experience in that kind of work. So I'm wondering how that influences your humor, your comedy, your writing. To me, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question. Stand-up is amazing because it's a direct connection to an audience, right? There, isn't, there aren't a lot of production values. There aren't necessarily other writers. It's just you and an audience, and you can say whatever's on your mind at that moment, right? And my favorite comics are the ones that shared their truth, right? And that truth is impacted by whatever you are experiencing or feeling in that moment and with the values that you have accumulated through many different experiences. So I feel like for me, I don't see a difference between observing things in the world and politics. They're the same thing. It's not so much that this stuff affects me. It's like it affects me as a human. So therefore, it's going to impact what I write about. I've been that person post 9-11 
when I was 18 or 19, I became a politicized being. Mm -hmm. I started asking questions. And so my comedy also tried to ask those questions. And to me, they're one and the same. I don't see this as activism. I see this as art. I don't I want to try to draw a distinction yeah. because I think it's healthier if you just do what you're supposed to do and focus on the task at hand versus trying to do more than you should be able to do and being ineffective at every part of it. I'd rather just do what I do. And I think by doing that, maybe I'm more effective. But certainly, I, I care about what I care about. And therefore, I'm going to talk about what I care about. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Along those lines, too... Your first comedy album, Waiting for 2042, is actually featured in high school and college curriculums. I'm a ethnic studies teacher at UW-Madison, and I- I've shown my students your work. And so I-, I guess I'm wondering why you think educators have been particularly receptive to your, uh, to your comedy. I mean, I think the promise of a laugh lets people lower their guards. That's what I've seen throughout my career. If I say certain things in one way without a laugh attached to it, people get frustrated. And it comes off as preachy and it sounds like, what are you trying to, you're going to try and change my values. But when you hear a joke, you don't know why you laugh the way you laugh sometimes. People laugh and they don't always get why, but it forces them to question, why am I laughing? Why is this interesting? What is he saying? So I think for... A lot of educators, it's an easy way to start the conversation. I am hoping to God it is not the only part of the conversation because comedy should only be seen as the bullet points. It's, it's, it's a way to introduce. It shouldn't be the actual discussion alone. But I feel like I've, that's part of the reason I think I've been useful to educators because I talk about this stuff in a way that's accessible, that isn't overly academic, but I do the best I can to encapsulate things that are very big in a way that's digestible without losing its meaning. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. You've got this upcoming documentary film that you're working on, which is obviously nonfiction, comes from real contemporary issues. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what that process has been like. Sure. I'm making a film about the character Apu from The Simpsons, the name of the documentary, which comes out on True TV, is called The Problem with Apu. And I think this is something that a lot of South Asian Americans of my generation, I'm 34 right now, have experienced, which is growing up without any kind of representation in the media. And for me, it was very strange growing up in Queens, New York, where the whole world is there. And I grew up with a lot of South Asian people, a lot of brown people, a lot of people whose parents were immigrants, to not exist when you put on the television. And the one way we existed was in these caricatures and the most, the most famous one being Apu. And as a Simpsons fan, it was always really complicated because I love the show. It's an incredible show, huge influence on me. But at the same time, that's who I am. And, and really more realistic, like more honestly, it's who my parents are. They're being depicted like that. And that certainly impacts how you view yourself and how you view your family. And there, there was an impact. And also, there's an incredible cultural heritage that kind of gets lost in that. It's a discussion as a Simpsons fan to how to address and cope with this reality and talk about the history of minstrelsy in this country. Like, it isn't a new phenomenon. This isn't shocking in a lot of ways. It continues a trend. 
Right. And it makes me think about, too, how South Asian American comedians such as yourself and Aziz Ansari maybe get pigeonholed sometimes into very specific labels or stereotypes or get introduced as Indian American comic Hari Kondabolu rather than right. just political comic Hari Kondabolu. I would hate political comic too, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> sure. <laughs> to me, it's again, politics and observation. They're the same thing. And I, I also think that my name of the, la- the name of the last record is called Mainstream American Comic. And I called it that because I think the points of view that I'm sharing are mainstream points of view. There is anger about racism. There is, there, there's a lot of people who, who talk about the history of this country that is hidden from the masses. There, there are people who are, are being marginalized, have been historically marginalized, and their stories are part of the American story. I don't see that as political. I see that as, a, as something I observe that people seem to, to gloss over or don't know about. To me, when you say the person does political comedy, it's very useful in terms of branding, and people are like, oh, I like this kind of thing. But it does lose the ability to connect with more people, which to me, that's the most important thing. I want as many people as possible to hear the stuff. And it's the same thing with the thing you were saying about Indian comics. Certainly, I don't shy away from who I am. I'm not embarrassed about who I am. I'm not embarrassed about my experiences culturally. I feel like this is is who I am. Uh, But I don't want to be just that. I'm a full human with a a broad range of experiences. Sometimes I'm terrible. Sometimes (laughs) I say things I regret. Sometimes I I have doubted myself. And that's all part of being a full human being. And that's, I think, why comedy is so powerful. You get to normalize a broad range of things that people did not know were parts of other people's experiences. Yeah, thank you for saying that. It's like I'm paid to speak publicly. Yeah, almost. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So we are in an age where artists or comedians, writers in general, who are making these observations in a kind of unapologetic way, has their platform grown? Or what do you see as this current climate? The internet's changed everything. To me, that's like the biggest difference. And, And that's twofold right like one i think it's easier to spread messages you're not just restricted to what the television says is true you can actually do your own research and the second thing is i feel like there is a much more educated it's this isn't a universal obviously but i think there's a lot more kids who are educated about the world earlier because they have access through the internet so the things like i was studying about gender as a college student, there are high school students that have already discussed this. The normal thing, they talk about it in school, and that's a huge leap. So I think when we talk about activism or how people are, are fighting or the art that they make, that has totally been influenced by the Internet. I have fans who are in high school, which I never thought, especially at 34, I would still have fans at that age. And I think the reason is because I've been talking about this stuff before a lot of people were talking about this stuff. And there are kids who connect with it. Right. Like they understand it because to maybe to adults, this is brand new, but to them, it's not. Nah, I've been reading about this since I was 14. I've been questioning gender openly for a long time as a result of technology and a result of a, a changing country. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's cool to hear, too, that young folks are accessing your work and accessing this knowledge and this kind of art, too, in a more accessible way. It's pretty amazing. I remember 
I was going to my apartment in Brooklyn, and there was like a 12-year-old white girl, and she was running towards me, and I'm like, what is going on right now? And she's out of breath, and she's saying, oh, Mr. Carnivola, I just want to say like how much I love your work, and you're my favorite comic, and show all my friends your stuff. And, and then she just like sprinted after the bus and got on, and I'm like, this is not what I expect. <laughs> I do not expect 12-year-old kids to tell me that my jokes about racism and sexism and oppression is their favorite thing to hear right. like when i was 12 honestly when i was 12 i would have hated me i <laughs> would not have been able to stand it how is this comedy what is he talking about <laughs> what is colonialism i'm indian so i would have known that one but it's this really strange the fact there are these young people who know what's going on more than i did at that age is, is exceptional it's exciting and i'm glad to be a part of that that's awesome. So speaking of young folks listening to comedy, who did you listen to growing up? What comedians inspired you? Margaret Cho, for me, was the first comic that made me want to do stand-up. And I've told Margaret this repeatedly. Like every time I see her, even though we're friends, I still have to tell her because, first of all, I'm in awe that I'm hanging out with her and also because right. I'm so grateful. There was no... There were black comics, Latinx com uh, comics, there were white comics, but you didn't see in the mainstream, you didn't see Asian American comics very much. And Margaret, she's a Korean American woman. She's queer. She's very politically active and strong. A combination of all those three things. So you're already breaking ground in one way, which is the Korean thing, which immediately catches people. And then there's all these other layers. And to me, it was like mind blowing. Like this person I've never seen on television, a human I've never, I didn't know humans like this even existed. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know, 14 or 15. I'm like, if she can be up there and share her truth and talk about her immigrant parents, then I should be allowed to, too. That was huge. She was my first comedic hero. And after that, Mark Marin, David Cross, Chris Rock, Chappelle, Pryor, Carlin. Paul Mooney is one of my two big ones. Paul yeah. Mooney aggressively talks about stand-up comedy in a way that I've never seen another comic talk about still. He will alienate people, but he won't, he won't compromise. And I didn't know it was okay to walk people. If people left your show, that, didn't, that doesn't mean you're doing badly. It might mean that you connected really strongly with some people and other people that they just didn't want to hear because that's not their truth and they disagree with you and they just couldn't handle hearing it. And that doesn't mean it's bad. And also Stuart Lee, who's a British comic that I admire greatly, and I think what he does with the form in terms of expanding how you can think about comedy and his writing is just unbelievable. There's a lot of different influences. That's the great thing about comedy. You can take bits and pieces and you're influenced by everything certainly kurt vonnegut and how he writes yeah. is incredible to me and how he structures things mark twain basically wrote jokes like a lot of those things are filled with jokes there's just such a wide range of things you don't want to be derivative but certainly i've been inspired definitely yeah and it's it's always cool when you can be really good friends with your comic heroes later in life yeah, it's certainly not something I expected, and I'm, I am grateful for it. Certainly, it's that's one of the perks of of being successful is that you can actually have access to people that you didn't know you would ever be able to meet or get to know. Definitely, they just seem they just seem idols, but they're I've been really lucky. I really have, and I'm like really fortunate. That's 
really awesome. Speaking of relationships with other comedians, I actually I heard about you year, several years ago because Hassan Minaj did an interview and cited you as one of his influences. And this was like back when he was just like an L.A.-based comic and it was like a like interview for a blog. I'm wondering if you see yourself as a mentor or as like someone who younger comedians, newer comedians look to. I don't want to because that means I'm dated. <laughs> that that means I am on the way out. I'd rather be Dylan than Guthrie, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Let's, let me enjoy the success as opposed to after I'm gone. What an influence he was. <laughs> what an influence that poor, broke comedian was. Right. I'd rather be allowed to enjoy it. Certainly, it's great. And a lot of comics, many of them South Asian, but not only South Asian, call me for advice or ask me about a point of view and want me to help them break down an idea. And I'm appreciative. That means they respect me. Hassan, for me, is I have a younger brother who I love very much. But Hassan, in terms of comedy, is like that for me. He's like a younger brother in comedy. And whenever he needs advice or has a thought, he asks for big brother time. And I'm like, yeah, of course. And I'm appreciative of the fact that somebody as talented as he is, because he has, that's not, that's something he has within him. Somebody as talented as he is sees me as a mentor, someone to, that he respects. And I'm so proud of him. He's about to host the White House Correspondence Center. That is so incredible. Whoa, I did so not know deserved. that. Yeah, yeah. He is, he is doing such incredible work, and he's reaching so many people and there's there's just so much pride there when a person of color succeeds it's a win for everybody an asian comic succeeds it's a win for everybody when a south asian comic succeeds it's a win for everybody and, uh, and regardless of your cultural background when a a smart comedian who is thoughtful with their language and is thoughtful with their ideas and cares about the world succeeds it's a win for all of us so I feel, for me, I'm invested in the success of my friends. Oh, that's such a lovely thing to say. It's also selfish because if they succeed, I succeed because yeah. of the rising tide analogy. But yeah, yeah I guess it's also, it sounds good. It's warm and fuzzy and also selfish. Yeah. Great. <laughs> right. That's a good combination of the two. Cool. This was awesome, Hari. Yes, it was. It, this was really nice. Aw. I hope you all enjoyed that excerpt of my interview with Hari Kondabolu back in 2017. If you want to listen to the full episode, or like honestly any interviews I did back in the day during my time as a live radio journalist, you can go to WORT.FM and visit the archive and just search my name. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for continuing to listen to the Anjali Vision podcast. As I mentioned earlier, I'm really excited for next month's episode where I'm going to be talking a little bit more in depth about Arab American representations in TV media. But in the meantime, I hope everyone takes care and thanks again. This episode was edited by Audrey Cornell, and Anjali Vision is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and other podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. Thanks again for tuning in. 
and catch you next time.